Good morning. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. I've got, got me a new set of glasses on. I'm, I'm praying all the transition lenses and all this will all work out. I can see my, it's like everything's going to be okay. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 5. I laughed today as, as we got through, said I, I wonder if anybody else, any other churches in Kings Mountain are preaching on 1 Corinthians 5 this morning, but not sure, but we are. So stand with me to your feet. This is where we find ourselves in our study through a church in, of Corinth. Remember, remember, call to mind every time you open up Scripture. What is the context of this I'm about to read? What's the background? What's going on? Remember, these are letters written to local churches that are having specific issues. And Paul is writing to them to deal with them. And so we are in full tilt content of this letter in 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to read all 13 verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindler or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such. Is it not those inside the church? What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word and there is a lot here. And so, Lord, over the next couple of weeks, help us to rightly divide your word over this issue of when do we and how do we discipline each other? Lord, help us to see the connection between what we talked about last week and this week in the minds of us today. That there is some consistent understanding and principles that you've laid out for us. Help us, Lord, this morning to grasp the truth and the beauty and the love and the protection that is given to us believers in your church. May we treasure it today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
So we see very clearly there is a case of sexual immorality in the church. And Paul, just like we said last week, is not covering it up. (laughs) He's blowing the lid off of it. Not that it was covered up anyway. And I, I know what you're thinking. Incest? Really? You're really going to preach on this? But I got some good news this morning. Good news for you. Good news for me. Good news for all of us. Paul did not make a biblical case for why incest is wrong. Did you notice that in the text? Paul presumes that both the church and the culture understood it was wrong. And so will we this morning, okay? So everybody just, just relax. I'm not going to get into that. It's wrong. The culture then knew it was wrong. At least right now, (laughs) our culture understands that this particular type of sexual immorality is wrong. The issue at hand, though, is church discipline. We're going to look at this in depth next week. We're going to connect Matthew 18, which is the church discipline passage, together with this. We're going to look at them both together. Well, what is church discipline? When do we practice it? How does it work? I want to just try to lay some foundation, a lot we could say this morning. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, just one book over here. 2 Corinthians 5, look with me at verse 17. We know this passage well. I hope you do. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Look down at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. We are new. We are two things this morning that that sort of governs and can help begin to understand church discipline. We are a new family. Listen, this is completely connected to last week. So many ways. And family protects each other. Amen? We don't pray off of each other. We talked about that last week. We're a new family and family protects each other. But also, what do we see in this text? We are Christ's representatives, His ambassadors to this world. So we've got to understand this this morning. There is both a communal aspect of church discipline and there's a missional aspect of church discipline. We are a family that we need to protect each other. We need to correct each other. And we're on a mission and we should care how the church of Jesus Christ is being representing Christ's name among this world and the nations. Both are critical. Both is not optional. We've all heard one of these three responses. There's at least three. These are just some of the most popular. Parents, you've, you've heard some of this. and If you're an employer, you've heard this. Anywhere you go, someone does something wrong and corrected. I did it. I'm ashamed of it. Right? I'm ashamed of it. This is a good one. We hear this a lot. I did it, but, you know, nobody's perfect. You know? Sort of excusing it away. How about this one? I did it. And I'm proud of it. You see, that's what's going on in the church in Corinth. Not only has the person did it, and they are proud of it, the church is proud of it. This is the unbelievable side. Not only, this is 
so applicable to today. Sin in the church is being tolerated and even celebrated here. So it was in Corinth, so it is today. There's nothing new under the sun. What should be done? Main idea. It's in your notes. Overlooking and allowing open sin in the lives of members of a local church bursts from arrogance, not love. Sort of our main thing I want us to get today. What is the place of pride in all of this? You see, it only takes one thing to endanger the church and render her ineffective. And it only takes one thing to danger your family and render it ineffective. And it's pride. Let pride in, all the rest will come. Don't even have to try. We saw it last week. What happens in people's life when they are abused? What is the church's responsibility? We said we rescue, we provide, and we protect, right? Remember that? So, what do we do with the bride which Christ has rescued and saved her with His own blood? Do we not have a responsibility for her purity and for her protection? The Bible says yes. And so does Paul. And so the desire to protect the church brings the reality of sin. We see it in the text. Verse 1, it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind, not even tolerated among the pagans. Say, not even the Greeks and the Romans are having anything to do with this. For a man has his father's wife. And so notice just a couple of words, sexual immorality here. It is the word pornea. It is the general term that the Bible used to describe any kind of sexual immorality, though this one is named specifically. If you're taking notes, this is not on your notes, it's not on the screen, so you'll have to, I'll make this, and this is important though. I want you to write it down if you're taking notes. There's three aspects we're going to come back to next week that's critical to see here in the text as it regards to church discipline. First, notice to start with, it is actually reported. He said, it is actually reported. In other words, there's a shock factor to this. There's an unbelievableness to this. And what else? Paul's not there, remember? It's been reported to him. Which means that this sin, this pornea, is public. It's critical. Understanding church discipline and how we respond to this particular sin is public. It is actively ongoing and everybody knows it. Incest. What does that word mean? Look up there. For a man has his father's wife. Most likely this is not biological. Most people think this is probably a stepmother. Leviticus 18.8 You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Not only was it understood amongst Jewish people that this was wrong, it was forbidden by Roman law. Just because it says it didn't occur among the pagans didn't mean it didn't happen. If you know your history, Roman history, you know it did happen. It means it was looked down on. It was condemned as evil, even by the pagans. It was public. It was scandalous. Which is another way of saying, this was serious. Why is that important? Because the nature of this sin, the public nature of this sin, has brought shame on the name of Christ and His church. There's another important aspect of how we must respond. 
and church discipline. This is public. This is scandalous. It's serious. And listen, look at verse 1. It's ongoing. For a man has his father's wife. As Paul is writing this letter, they are actively in intimate relationships with each other, ongoing inside the church, sitting in the seat on Sunday. No shame. Everybody knows. The church knows. The public knows. Everybody knows. It is ongoing. Therefore, it is unrepentant. He is actively in this and he has not repented. So we see four realities that you're going to need to remember for next week. This sin is public. It is scandalous. It is ongoing. It is unrepentant. And what is the church's response? Look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Aren't you not rather to mourn? You see, sin demands and commands what? Either celebration or mourning. And they're not mourning. Here's what they're saying. Look how tolerant we are. Look how tolerant we are. They're proud of it. They have a perverted view of both grace and tolerance. Remember Romans 6.1? What do we say then? Are we just continues to sin abound? Here's what they were saying. Absolutely. Grace covers it. It's okay. I, I dare you when you get home, just Google denominations that have embraced homosexuality in their pulpits. List after list, not only in America, all around the world. We have, as the church, not as the culture, as the church embraced pornea. Right here, behind the pulpit. When you embrace this view of Christian freedom, it gives you a license to all excuse almost anything. And so they have. It took, the church was taking pride in accepting this unrepentant, immoral man into the life and ministry of the church. Arrogance. It's what destroyed Lucifer. It's what destroyed the garden. And it will destroy his church if embraced. And that's what happened. You see, passivity has led to arrogance. And arrogance always destroys. It has no other purpose. What is the right response? You see it there, don't you? Mourning. That's the right response. Verse 2, shouldn't you rather have grieved? It should break our hearts when we see one of our brothers and sisters fall into sin. Instead, they were celebrating over it. Turn with me to Romans. Remember we said when we started, who's your one? I hope you've got yours. I hope you're praying for them and making a strategy to reach them. Remember we said Paul had one too, one people. It was the Jews. Romans 9 verse 2. Back up just a little bit. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears... Me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now verse 2, listen. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You see, when he looked out and he saw unbelieving Israel, what did Paul's response? It wasn't a celebration. It was grief. He was grieved. To protect the church, we must call sin, sin, and we should grieve over it. But here's what the text says. We don't stop there. 
The desire to protect the church brings the reality of sin's consequences. Parents, you can take this message and apply this into your homes today. He says, for though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. In other words, what's the corrective action that Paul has already determined to be? Do you see it? Judgment. He says, not only are we going to cause sin, sin. Not only am I correcting the individual, but also the church. But there's a consequence to this. Now remember... Remember the nature of the sin. Public, scandalous, ongoing, unrepentant. So what does he say to do? Look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are they going to do about this man who is called in sin? They are going to gather. A gathering of the congregation is going to happen And they're not going to just assemble themselves. Do you see it? Call a gathering. It's what we do as a church gathers. We gather in the name. And listen, that's just not something we tack on to the end of our prayer so that we can eat our sandwich today. It's not what it means. It means we have gathered according to His will, by His authority, for His glory. That's what we say when we say in Jesus' name. He says, you gather an assembly in His name and in His power. Matthew 18, 20. We'll look at this next week. One of the great texts taken out of context. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there am I among them. No, that's not your two friends at the coffee shop. That's not what it means. The context of this is Christ given authority to to discipline His church. That's the context. And that's what you do. You gather an assembly. And what is that assembly supposed to do? Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So what are they supposed to do with this man who is committing incest in the church? Expel him from the congregation. That's what it says. Not writing it, just delivering it. You are to deliver this man over. That means hand him over. This is an active command. Paul says, I've already made my judgment, but you're going to gather. I'm going to be with there in spirit, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to expel him from the congregation. I'm afraid because of our Western individualism, we don't even have a framework for this. Do you really see yourself as a family this morning? Someone who has been delivered from something very dangerous. I wonder, let's turn with me to Colossians. I want you to see it. You need to understand this this morning. It's not not a small deal for someone who says they're a Christian to not be a member of a local church. It is... Dangerous. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered who? Us, the church, the local church. Remember, this is a letter written to the local church. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. When you are saved, you are saved from something and you are put into something. You are put into Christ. And when you are put into Christ, you are put into His church. 
It's the place we have been transferred from something that is dark to somewhere that is light. Somewhere that is dangerous to somewhere that is safe. And here's what he's saying. Hand him over. To be expelled from the church is to be delivered over into the regions where Satan holds sway. This is, listen, this is the protective reality of the local church. It is never to be underestimated. The spiritual is just as real as the physical. And there is someone who seeks to destroy you. There is a protective reality of the local church, and this person is about to lose that reality. He is to be handed over to Satan. This is not vindictive. This is corrective. This is redemptive. Notice it in the text. I'm not adding to it today. I'm just reading. Notice verse 5. So that. So that. That means that's purpose. This is the why of church discipline. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Why do we hand him over so that he may be saved? Paul sees this as corrective. He's got his soul in mind, not his flesh. He don't have the temporal in mind. He's got the eternal. And all that we would treat each other and our own children this way. To do this is to exclude the wayward brother from Christian community and to treat him as a pagan and a tax collector. If you, don't, you think this is one place taken out, look at Matthew 18, 17. Jesus says to do the same thing. I know this seems harsh to our modern ears. Expulsion here. The removal of this person from the community of faith is meant to bring this man to repentance. That's the goal. He said, well, Stephen, you've mentioned the family a couple times. What do you mean by that? Listen to what I'm going to say right here real carefully because I think I've even got it colored different in my sermon so I don't skip over it. Toleration and enabling someone to sin will bring no one to repentance. It only hardens them in their sin. Let me say that again. Toleration and enabling someone's sin will bring no one to repentance. It will only harden them in their sin. So, our little car, Rachel drives, the headlights were busted and all the brackets were busted. They were basically just hanging there with the wires holding them in. So what did I do? I have to go get this JB Weld. You get close enough to me, I got, this, I got it all over my hands. Now my hands are black. But you mix it together. There's two tubes in this. When you squeeze it out, two things come out. The resin part and the hardening part. You mix it together, put it on there, it hardens it. This is what's happening. When you enable someone to sin by not correcting them, when you simply tolerate it, it will harden their heart. Just like J.B. Weld fixed my headlights. Tolerating sin, enabling someone to live in sin is not love. Listen to me this morning. We are not better parents than God. And when God commands discipline, we discipline. And that is the standard of love. Why? Because God is perfect and He is holy. And He is love. He is not just loving. He's love. And when He does it, it's right. And we would do well to follow His pattern. We love people enough to call sin, sin. We love people enough, listen, to give them the grace of misery and natural consequences. And trust God's sovereignty to bring them to repentance. 
This is the text this morning. It's not just about the individual. Church discipline is not just about the individual coming to repentance, though it is. It's also about the purity of the whole church. Church discipline desires the purity of the individual and their holiness, but also the purity of the whole church. And so the desire to protect the church brings the pursuit of something, the pursuit of purity. You ever thought about this under your, it's on the notes under your subpoints, that purity is protection? Purity is protection. There is protection in purity. And so Paul now looks towards the congregation, having said, called sin, sin, having said what the consequence of this man's sin is going to be, he turns toward the congregation and said in verse 6, your boasting's not good. You're boasting. Your toleration is not toleration. It is boasting. It is arrogance. And that this tolerance is both unloving and it's destructive. It's destructive for the soul of that individual. And it is destructive for the church as a body. He said, don't you know? Look at verse 6. Don't you know? In other words, this is obvious. This is every time you make bread, you should have an illustration to this that God calls us to be an unleavened bread and not sourdough. (laughs) Don't you know that Sin, by its very nature, spreads. That's what he's saying. New Living Translation. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? This yeast is not the person. This yeast is sin. It's used all through Scripture to talk about evil and wickedness. I wonder if we feel this way individually and collectively. That one sin, one sin, plunged us all into darkness. And one sin, left unchecked in our life and in the body of Christ's life, hardens your conscience, dulls your spiritual senses, quenches the Holy Spirit not only in your life, but when you hide sin and come into the body of Christ, it quenches the Holy Spirit in the whole body's life. Sin is that dangerous. John Owen says, be killing sin or it be killing you. He goes on to say that it is our daily work... (laughs) To kill sin in our own life. And so it is in the body of Christ. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. That you may be a new lump. But notice what he says. You really are unleavened. Remember what unleavened means. It means holy. It, that is the indicative. Anybody got a grammar person? Anybody's with grammar? Besides my wife. Corrects my grammar all the time. What's an indicative? Somebody tell me. What's, the, what's an indicative? Come on now. Anybody going to talk to me today? It's a statement of fact, right? The indicative. In Scripture, the indicatives drives the imperatives. What's an imperative? Now, y'all know that one. And command means, yeah, do it. So the indicative drives the imperative. You are holy. Therefore, the imperative. Cleanse it out then. Because of who you are, this is what you must do. This word cleanse out means to remove something impure from your environment and your very presence. 
quoting John Owen again. It says, let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lust. We fight it individually. We fight it collectively. This is the foundation in verse 7 of church discipline. It is his point he's made throughout the letter so far. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see? Church discipline is a gospel issue. Remember last week we said abuse is a gospel issue. Correcting each other is a gospel issue. Why? Because Christ, our Passover land, has been sacrificed. You ever had sickness in the home? Like someone had this real contagious bug? Especially kids. They can't help it, you know, but they wipe and cough everywhere. And they, they touch absolutely everything. The whole family gets sick. When that thing finally starts to turn around, what do you do? You clean the whole house, Right? Take the sheets off, you get your you spray, you're wiping everything, get all this. If you if you get sick at our house, we're gonna stick you in a room and slide your plate under the door. I say, love is separation. You get away from us until you get better. This is an illustration he's using, and because we don't know Jewish history, it may not mean as much to us this morning, but this is important. To remember the Exodus. The Jewish people would have the Passover. And before the Passover was, was in full sway, here's what the whole family would do. They would have a solemn search for yeast. Remember what yeast represents. They would search the house. And you have to go back to history to grab some of this. But they would search the house to make sure they would rid the whole house of any yeast. And if it had touched there, they'd get a rag and clean it. Here's what, that's what he said. That's the illustration. That to celebrate, that the, because of the Passover, we did not perish, but were rescued. And he says, Church, your Passover is Jesus Christ, and he was slain, he was sacrificed for you. You see, for the Jews, this was occasional. It was an occasional celebration to remember God's rescue operation for them from the Exodus. And it's how we should motivate them to holiness and obedience. But for the church, Christ, the final Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, the whole of our lives, every day, is a celebration. And one where we earnestly and actively and collectively seek for each other's purity in our actual lives. To rid ourselves from the very presence of sin because Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. And we are holy. So we are to be holy. That's what he's saying today. Church, this one's a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. He's saying, church, look at yourself today because one of two qualities characterize you. Either wickedness and evil or sincerity and truth. Do you remember last week, Ephesians 5? Husbands and wives submit to each other. This is critical to understand church discipline. That's why I said it's first. Submit to each other. Why? Because we both commit to each other that we both pursue and desire for each other to be holy and blameless. We do so because there's a bigger picture, and the picture is Christ and His church. Christ desires His church to be holy without spot and blemish. And we are the means to that. 
We are part of that. And one of the primary means he gives us as a gift of his grace as the family of God is the fact that we should discipline each other. And I'm sure today we've all got to this point. If we could take everything that's probably been misunderstood up to this point, it might be pretty, a pretty good list. It happens all the time. We hear something, we think we hear what we hear, we don't really hear what we hear, or the guy's supposed to said what he said, he didn't say it clearly, and we misunderstand. It's comforting me as a pastor to know Paul was misunderstood as well. And so he, he gets into verse 9 to a misunderstanding. Whether it was genuine or whether it was his critics, we don't know for sure. But this was a misunderstanding of, in our desire for purity, who should we disassociate from? Right? We've talked about we need to disassociate. So, are you saying we should... Well, they said, sounds like to me we're not supposed to be around evil people at all. You know, we're all just turning... We'll just become monks. By the way, that didn't work. <laughs> they went, their sin went into the monastery with them. But there was a misunderstanding. I can remember when me and Christina was showing our age now. Um, Jacob's 21... Yeah, it's a long time ago. Over 20 years ago, we, were, we built our house. Jacob was expecting. He was almost here. And we, we were start. Thank you for that. Y'all couldn't have figured that out, right? Anyway. Christina was expecting Jacob. We built our house. And we built our house in the bathroom. And the bathroom was a Disney had Mickey Mouse because, you know, who, who doesn't like Mickey Mouse? The problem was the Southern Baptist Convention told all Southern Baptists that we're supposed to boycott Disney. So we had to be careful that if anybody came over, we didn't take them to that bathroom because we were supposed to be boycotting. Laugh at it now, but this is a misunderstanding that happens oftentimes in the church. Disney is not a Christian organization. and I hope you don't think they are. They're not. But neither is Target. You know? Church discipline is not imposing judgment on the world. That's the misunderstanding. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Don't you like he's specific? Since then, you would need to go out of the world Right? He's saying, use your common sense. That couldn't be what I meant. This word associate means to mix, be mixed up with. Since Christians minister to the world, we cannot remove ourselves from the world. This is the missional side of church discipline. We represent Christ to the world. They are our mission field. We cannot separate from them, nor should we. How would we have ever been saved if someone would have done this? You know, to tell anybody about the gospel, you got to take them to lunch. you got to engage them. Jesus understood this. Matthew 9, 10. Jesus reclined at the table of the house with who? Tax collectors and who? Sinners. There was a misunderstanding. And oh my goodness, there is a misunderstanding now of this term here. Judge not. Right? There's a misunderstanding. 
All you got to do is try to talk to about somebody about something. They'll give you that text. They, got, they don't know where it is, but it's somewhere in the Bible. But now, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you. He's going to clear it up right now. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Look what he says. Don't even eat with him. So do you see the clarity? So you, Don't you think I'm saying you're supposed to separate yourself and not engage the world because we're his and Christ's ambassadors to the world? But here's who you're not supposed to associate with. Someone who professes the name of Christ and lives in a way that doesn't match it. Because he's bringing shame on the name of Christ. I.e. the brother that he just got through talking about. But then we have to say, hold on a second. But we're not supposed to judge each other. Don't the Bible say that? Look what the Bible does say. Verse 12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Do you see the clarity? The Bible is absolutely clear. God judges those outside the church. We judge each other inside the church. In Matthew 7, which is the judge not passage, we're not going to get into that. I want you to see the text there because if you haven't heard it, someone's going to quote it to you next week. You might as well know, know where it is. Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with measure you use, you will be measured to you. Look at this. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, notice who we're talking about here, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. Verse 5, you hypocrite. Notice this. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Question, are you supposed to take the speck out of your brother's eye? Yes, that's what the text is saying. You're supposed to, but you're not supposed to do it with that pole in your own eye. You're supposed to look at yourself by the standard that you judge others. You will be judged, and we judge ourselves by Christ. That's what it's saying. It doesn't tell us that we are not to judge. It tells us how to judge. We'll talk about that more next week. So he says, judge not those outside. We love to throw rocks at the pagans, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing the biblical indicative is Christ died for our sins. So we need to correct each other when we fall into sin. This is grace, brothers and sisters. This is protection. This is love. Verse 13 ends with a sobering summary to this section. God judges those outside, so purge that evil person from among you. He says to expel this person six times in this text. That's the point. <laughs> so what today? Is there a gap between what you profess and how you live? You see it? We naturally drift, brothers and sisters. We do. And, and if you don't think you do, you're deceived. We naturally drift. We need brothers and sisters. I've said it a thousand times. If someone wants to change a pathway they are walking, they must gather themselves a group of people that they want to be like to change. That's not a Christian principle. You can find many institutions that practice a day. But we are Christians and we follow Christ. 
We gather around each other as we follow Christ together. And when one of us stumbles and when we fall, when there is a gap that begins to emerge and it gets that big, is there someone in your life that loves you enough to take you to coffee and point it out? And how will you receive it? Will you receive it as love today? That someone loves you enough to do that? The Bible says it's love. All those God loves, He disciplines. We all sin in our life. Amen? We all do. You will before you get to the car today. (laughs) Does it bring celebration or mourning? Do you weep over here, one? Talking to a brother before worship, we both have a heart for the same guy. I weep over it. It's what Paul does. This is the heart of church discipline. If that's not your heart today, don't correct anybody. Because you only do it in anger. We correct because we hate sin. And we weep over the effect of sin in our own life and the lives of those that we love. That's why we correct. Just a practical thing as we close. Do you count it a privilege to be part of a church that practices this? It is. Because a church that doesn't is an unbiblical church. And could even cease to be a church. We're family. We fight for each other. We'll rescue each other. We'll defend each other. But we correct each other. I want to close with this. I know I quoted Bonhoeffer last week, but he, get right, he, got, he gets right to the heart of what's going on in this text today, which is an idea of cheap grace. He contrasts cheap grace versus costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ that which disciples leave his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it calls to God the life of His Son. Ye were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. 
Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Brothers and sisters, as we close, let us remember Matthew five fourteen: You are a light of the world. A city set on a hill. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, now, as we have introduced a subject here that's going to take us a couple weeks to unpack, Lord, uh, guard us from misunderstandings. Guard us from an idea that this is some kind of harsh, arrogant operation. This is delicate. This is surgical. It's hard. It's costly. Doing these things reflects what your son did for us. And so, Lord, we are here today because you've gathered us together because we are the rescued. And so now, we have come to the application of that rescue, the very life that we live. And Lord, we ask today that you would help us celebrate the festival. That Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And he is risen. He is risen indeed. So, therefore, let our lives reflect it. Receive our worship, Lord, of both this time of worship and our very lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.